Church, today we continue our sermon series entitled Thank You as we walk through 1 Thessalonians. I invite you to draw your sword, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, I'm going to read in your hearing verses 1 to 13. So when we could stand it no longer... We thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who was our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason... When I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that, you may, that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself... And our Lord Jesus Christ, clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you'll be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when the Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. This is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Do you know what it feels like to anxiously await much-anticipated news? Ryan knew what that felt like. As every day he checked the mailbox hoping to find the letter of acceptance from his college of choice. Sally knew what that felt like. As she and her husband tried to continually conceive their firstborn child, and the results of the home pregnancy test could not be revealed quickly enough. Tom knew what it felt like as he anxiously awaited the results of the biopsy. The butterflies in his stomach did somersaults as he sat in the examination room and all of a sudden the doctor opened the door and entered the room. Do you know what it feels like to anxiously await some much-anticipated news. If you know what that feels like, then you know exactly how the Apostle Paul felt in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. He had been called by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles living all throughout Macedonia. He went to the leading cities, places like Philippi, Thessalonica, and uh, on to Athens and Corinth. It was there that the apostle would take the gospel and proclaim the good news that Jesus is Christ. Every city he went to, 
he experienced about the same scenario. Initially, there was gospel success, but it was always short-lived because once the Jewish leaders in that particular town heard that Paul was proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, they would evict him and send him packing with all of his companions. Especially when you think about Thessalonica. He was only there for a few weeks. Initially, there was great success, but the Jewish leaders began to round up some bad characters from the marketplace. You and I would call them thugs. And they brutally attacked Paul and Timothy and Silas, and they kicked them out of town, sent them on to Berea. And Paul, when he got to Athens, we are told in our passage not once but twice, when I could stand it no longer, I had to see how you were doing. Do you hear the anxiety in that statement? I could stand it no longer. I, I, I couldn't wait any longer. I needed to see your face. I needed to hear a good report. I needed to know how you were doing. We were only there for a few weeks. The church was established, but, but it was only established in less than a month. And, and I just needed to see if the faith had taken root in your life when I could stand it no longer. We thought it wise to stay by ourselves in Athens, to send Timothy on ahead to check on you Thessalonians just to see how you were doing in the faith. For Paul, he was much more obsessed with making disciples than making decisions. He could really care less about the number of people that walked an aisle, filled out a card, even got wet in the waters of baptism, but then were nowhere to be found. He wanted to make disciples. He wanted people that would grow in their faith. He wanted those who were not just convenient in Christianity, but were committed in Christianity. And in our passage, Paul desperately needs to know, is the faith flourishing in Thessalonica, or have the believers floundered in their faith? He needed to know have disciples taken root there in Thessalonica. And so Paul sent Timothy because he desperately needed to know if the faith had been firmly established. You know, the goal of the gospel is to grow faith in you. This idea of faith is a prominent theme in our passage. In fact, in 13 verses, it's mentioned five times. In verses 2, 5, 6, 7, and 10, on five occasions, the apostle writes something about faith. And faith is to be on display in your life and mine. And Paul desperately wants to know if the people of Thessalonica were still clinging to the faith that they professed in Jesus Christ. I like what Paul said in another letter when he talked about what faith looks like. When the apostles said in the letter to the Galatian churches that faith is Christ being formed in you. That's faith. Christ being formed in you. That word formed, it, it means shaped. It means galvanized. That, that Christ is formed in you. And the forming of Christ in you is something that is a divine experience and it requires some human effort. You think to yourself, that sounds like a contradiction, Pastor. Well, it's really not. Let me say it another way. Christ being formed in you is something that happens in an instant at the moment of faith and it's something that spans a lifetime. 
Because the moment that Christ awakens inside of you a desire to follow him, the moment that God awakens your spirit to the Holy Spirit, in that moment, Christ is formed in you. It's an instant. It's something that happens at the moment of faith for you go from death unto life, from no salvation to salvation. In that moment, Christ is formed in you. And then you spend the rest of your life and Christ is being formed in your hands and your habits. So that it could honestly be said that you look more like Christ today than you did a year ago, believer. And, Christian, you'll look more like Jesus next year than you do today. Because the forming of Christ in you, yes, is something that's divine. It's something that happens in a moment. But it also spans a lifetime so that you are one who who chooses righteousness and justice, and you allow for Christ to be formed in you. Let me simply say it this way. It's kind of like that Christmas toy that you bought for your daughter. And, and you see the picture, and everything's there. And in the box, everything is there in that box. But on that box, there's a statement. Some assembly required. You read that phrase, and you know, you know what? This is going to take some work. It's going to take more time than I think it's going to take. It's going to take more effort than I think it's going to take in order for me to be able to produce what's there on that box. Some assembly required. So it is with your faith, my friend. In Christ, you have everything that you need. And at the moment of faith, Christ is formed in you. That's who you are. And then you spend the rest of your life. And Christ is continually being formed in you. So that the longer you walk with Christ the more frequently you take captive every thought and subject it to Christ. That as you walk with Christ and as you live with him and as he is being formed in you, then you more readily slay the sin that so easily entangles you. That as Christ is being formed in you, you pray even when you're tired. And you read the scripture even when you don't feel like it. And you share the good news of the gospel even when it scares you to death. Why? Because Christ is being formed in you. Yes, he is formed in you at the moment of faith. It's an instantaneous experience. It's a glorious transaction. It's a sweet swap of salvation. You give him your sin. He gives you his sanctification and his holiness. But yet you span the rest of your life and allow Christ to be formed in you. What Paul is really asking in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, is this Christ being formed in you? Now, I know Paul would say that positionally, you are in Christ at the moment of faith. But practically, as you, as you demonstrate your life, is Christ being formed in you? In the moment of trial and trouble and persecution and problems, do you reach for Christ or are you pushing him away? That's what Paul wants to know. When he comes to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, he desperately needs to know, is Christ being formed in you? Have you allowed the gospel to go deep into your soul? Have you allowed the gospel to impact your thinking and your habits? Have you allowed the gospel to be formed in you? Is Christ being formed in you? That's the question that he needs answered. So he says, on two occasions, when I could stand it no longer, I had to check on you. I could stand it no longer. I had to see about you. So he sent Timothy, that fellow worker in the gospel cause. In verse 5, 
The reason Paul is concerned is because he says, I was afraid. Let's stop right there. There aren't very many times when Paul says in his writings that he was afraid or concerned. Yet here he's just transparent. Some of us think of Paul as a super saint, and he was a great guy, but the greatest thing about him is that he was a follower of Jesus. He was just as human as you and me. And Paul says in verse 5, I was afraid, for I fear that the tempter might tempt you, and our work, our effort, would be useless. Paul understood the moment somebody gets serious about Jesus, the moment you have a mountaintop experience, the first person you meet in the valley is the devil. That the moment that you want to get right with God, the moment that you, that you uh, lay your, your faith and your life and your hopes and your dreams at the feet of Jesus, the first person to come at you is the devil to tempt you, to compromise your faith, and to try to destroy and distract you. That's exactly what the tempter did to our Lord Jesus Christ. You may recall that following the baptism of Jesus, which is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that the baptism of Jesus marked the beginning of his public ministry. That Jesus went to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. And John, his relative, said, I don't need to baptize you. You need to be baptizing me. And Jesus said, no, to fulfill all righteousness, this must happen. This past week, I came across a statement that said the reason Jesus launched his public ministry in the waters of baptism was because he was beginning with the end in mind. For he knew that the end of this three-year ministry would bring about his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. And in the baptism of Jesus, we see those things symbolized. It is the death, burial, and resurrection. And so Jesus says this must happen. It must take place. And following that baptism, as he comes up out of the water, it is the heavens that are ripped open. The Spirit of God descends like a dove. And the voice of God Almighty says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. As soon as the baptism was over, this, this great mountaintop experience, it was the Spirit of God that threw, cast, thrust Jesus into the wilderness, and there he was tempted by the adversary. It is the devil who tempted Jesus, trying to dissuade him from obedience to the Father. What the devil tried to do to Jesus, he tries to do to you and to me on a regular basis. One of the temptations is that the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain in an instant he showed him all of the kingdoms of the world. He said, since you are the son of God, you shouldn't have to suffer. I tell you what, I'll give you the keys to all these kingdoms. And all you have to do is just compromise a little bit. Just bow down and worship me. My way will not lead to suffering. My way is easier than his way, so why don't you just follow my way instead of his way? All these kingdoms will be yours. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. It's a temptation as a call to compromise. And what the devil leveled against Jesus, he still levels against you and me today. It's the devil who says to the teenager, one time is not going to hurt you. It's the devil who says to the adult, listen, nobody's going to find out. It's the devil who says to the believer, who do you think you are to tell them that their lifestyle is unacceptable? If they truly love each other, why shouldn't they get married? It's the devil who tries to say, 
to the Christian, are you so arrogant to believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? He may be your way, but why are you so arrogant to say he's the only way? Are you trying to tell the entire world that every other world religion is wrong? How arrogant you must be. Just compromise just a little bit. If you compromise a little bit here and you compromise a little bit there, I promise you, your life will be free of suffering. The devil tries to say to you and to me, my way is a lot easier than his way. Sure, he has a path for you, but my way is easier than his way. Why don't you just come and follow me? All you got to do is just bow down and worship me. What Jesus said to the devil, you and I need to proclaim from the mountaintop. Away from me, Satan. For the Bible says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. My life belongs to Christ. I am indebted unto him. I am his property and I will bow my knee only to God and God alone. What Paul wants to know is has the tempter come and tried to dissuade you, Thessalonians? Has the tempter come and then uh, in essence got you off track and got you off uh, of, of your point? I've got to know, Paul says, is Christ being formed in you. I know it happened in a moment, but is it continuing to happen on a daily basis? Is Christ being formed in you? You get to verse 6, and there's a holy but. You get to verse 6. But Timothy has arrived, and Timothy has come with some good news. He has told us about your ever-growing faith and love. It is John Calvin, as he thought about that one verse he said that the apostle Paul comprehends and understands that in those two words faith love is a summation of true piety in those two words faith love is a summation of true piety what does God want from you what does God expect from us? Faith and love. Faith in God and love for one another. Faith in the biblical God. It is the biblical God who describes himself and shows us that he is the God of justice and righteousness and grace and mercy. In fact, I submit to you this morning that apart from God, we have no understanding of what is just. Apart from God, we have no understanding of what is righteous. Apart from God, we do not have any capacity to fathom grace. And apart from God, we have no understanding of massive mercy. It is only in the biblical God, it is only in the triune God of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. It is only in God that we have an understanding of what is just and right and gracious and merciful. And because we know what it is in God, then we also know what it is in our world when there is injustice. And we also know what it is 
when there are acts of unrighteousness. And we also know what it is when something is no longer gracious. And we also know what it is when something is not merciful. It is, under, it is understanding who God is. It is knowing God personally that you and I understand and we have faith in this biblical God. What Paul is remembering and what he's realizing from Timothy is that those Thessalonians, they are growing in their faith in God. They have a faith in God that shows them what is just and righteous and gracious and merciful. And what Paul learned of those believers, I tell you, believers, today, because we are God followers, because we know God personally from his word, we know what it is when something is just and right and gracious and merciful. And when we, as God's people, when we as a church see something, something that happens on the streets, something that takes place in our world that is unrighteous, we stand against it. When it's unjust, we stand against it. When it lacks grace, we are against it. When there is no display of mercy, we are against it. For we know what those characteristics are only because of who God is. And our faith is squarely placed in God. So I'm telling you, have faith in God. He's on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches over his own. He cannot fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. What Paul says and what he understands of the Thessalonians is they are growing in their faith in God. And what's true of, of that church must be true of this church. We are growing in our faith in God. But not just faith. Love. This is agape love. This is God's love. Unconditional love. Unmerited love. It is love on display. They were growing in faith and love. And, and who were they demonstrating this love to? Anybody, everybody, those in Christ, those outside of Christ, those in Thessalonica, those all throughout Macedonia, they were demonstrating this love to people that look like them and people that didn't look like them, the people that walk like them and people that didn't walk like them, people that talk like them and people that did not talk like them. They demonstrated love. You remember that Jesus one day was asked by a hotshot lawyer, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like an unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That lawyer, fresh out of law school, thought to himself, I know what it is to love God with everything that's inside of me. But loving neighbor, let me ask you, Rabbi, who is my neighbor? In essence, what he's asking, who do I have to show love towards? Because certainly God does not expect me to love everybody. And Jesus, off the cuff, spun one of those great little stories. We call it the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus said there was a Jewish man that was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And there he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, they beat him, they left him half dead in his own pool of blood. A few moments later, a Jewish priest came by. Now you would think that a Jewish priest or preacher would help somebody in need. But when he saw the scenario and noticed the blood, he did not want to contaminate himself. So he turned a blind eye and crossed the street on the other side. 
A few moments later, a Levite came by. You and I may call it a deacon. A deacon of the church came by. You would expect for the deacon to help. I mean, if the preacher's not going to help, surely the deacons will help. And when that Levite saw this man in his bloody condition, he thought to himself, I've got too many places to go and people to see to mess with that. And so he too turned a blind eye, crossed the street, and went by on the other side. But Jesus shocked the crowd when he said a Samaritan saw the man took pity on him. He went and got his own hands dirty. He he bandaged this man with his wounds. He put him on his own beast of burden. He took him into town. He watched over him all night long. The next day he said to the innkeeper, here are two silver coins, which is more than enough for you to take care of my newfound friend. And if you spend more than this, then you know I'm good for it because next time I'm through town, I'll pay his debt. And Jesus said to the hotshot lawyer, Which one was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the lawyer thought to himself, I can't even say the word Samaritan. So he said to Jesus, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Sometimes we hear that story and and part of the punch is lost because we've heard it so much. We know the Jews and the Samaritans, the Hatfields and the McCoys. We think to ourselves, yeah, they just didn't like each other. Brother, they hated each other. They despised each other. And it had gone down for hundreds of years. It'd be similar that if we were telling this story in the days of the American Revolution, it would be like a a person living in the colonies helped a redcoat from Britain. Or if this was told during the days of the Civil War, it'd be like a Confederate soldier helping a Union officer. This story was told in the Americas of the 1960s. It would be like a white man helping a black man. This story was told in our day. It could be that an American would help an Iraqi, a conservative would help a liberal. Can you imagine that? That somebody would help somebody on the opposite end of the spectrum. And when you begin to stop and think about that, that's the punch of the story. That Jesus is saying, your neighbor has nothing to do with pigmentation of skin. Your neighbor has nothing to do with geography, literally how close of proximity they live to you. Your neighbor is anybody, anybody, anybody who has a need that you're in a position to meet. What Paul is rejoicing over is that he hears from Timothy that the people in Thessalonica, they got the gospel. The gospel's got them. How do you know? Because it's an ever-growing demonstration of faith and love. Faith in God and love for others, regardless of what the others look like. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. You grow in faith and love. John Calvin said, this is the summation of true piety you get to verse 10 and Paul just pretty much explodes in a prayer of thanksgiving he asks the question how can I thank God enough for you friends what he says of those believers I say to you today how can I thank God enough for you you have no idea your physical presence today it it bolsters my faith it's a shot in my arm Because of how I've seen you grow over the last few months, you are a blessing to me. 
I thank God for you. How can I thank God enough for you? So he prays in verse 10 through the end of the passage. He says, I I, I pray that God would clear the path so I may come and supply what is lacking in your faith. Oh, I pray that your love, that's agape love once again, that your love may abound all the more towards everyone. And I pray, he says, that you may be strengthened, you may be blameless, you may be holy, as the day that Jesus returns with all of his holy ones. In verse 10, Paul says, I pray uh, that God will clear the way so I can come and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now at first read, that sounds a bit arrogant, doesn't it? The apostle is going to come in. And he's going to supply what is lacking in your faith. At first read, you may think to yourself, that sounds a little brash, doesn't it? And the reality is, it's really not arrogant at all. In fact, uh, if you look at that phrase, specifically the word supply, it's a beautiful word that does not communicate any type of pride. The word supply is a nautical term. It literally means that a fisherman mends the tattered nets. A wise fisherman knew that after he came in from an all-night fish uh, that the nets would be frayed, tattered, torn. There'd be some places where there were weak spots in the nets. And a wise fisherman knew that before I go back out into the seas, before I go back and face another storm, I better take some time to mend the nets, to supply what is lacking, to to uh, re-fortify the tattered, torn areas of the nets. And Paul, he's a fisher of men, and he says, what I want to do is I want to come and I want us to worship together. I want us to minister together. I want us to come and share Christ together. There is something about being in God's house on God's day with God's people. Can I get an amen? There is something about coming together physically and virtually. There's something about gathering around God's word and it ministers to us. It supplies what is lacking. We are not all that we ought to be. Praise God we're not what we used to be, but, but, but we're still lacking in some areas. And at best... We're tattered nets. That's all we are. We are torn. We are frayed. We are weak. We are worn. We are tattered. And it is good for us to come together, gather around God's word, and for allow our brothers and sisters to minister to us. Because there are places in your life and mine that are gaping holes. Maybe that's been revealed to you during coronavirus. Maybe that's been revealed to you in these last few days uh, when we as a nation have been grieving this injustice. Maybe you realize as you look at your own life, your own tattered net, there are gaping holes of disobedience and prejudice in my life. And I need for God to mend me. I need for God and God's people to help me along the way because I'm worn and I'm tattered and I'm frazzled. And Paul says, I just can't wait to be with you. I pray that God clears the way so that we can help each other along. Because all of us are insufficient without the other. We need each other. We need each other to come alongside and to mend the tattered nets. 
Paul says, I pray that your agape love may abound more and more as you display it to everyone. And last but not least, he prays that the church would be strengthened and blameless and holy until the day of Christ Jesus. As you read 1 Thessalonians, neither, nearly every chapter and on every page, there is some reference to the second coming of Christ. Paul would say, every decision I make today is in light of the reality that Jesus is coming back. There's coming a day when Jesus will return. And Paul says, everything is seen against the landscape of the second coming of Christ when he returns with the holy ones. Church, I know it's been 2,000 years. But just because it's been 2,000 years, that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Jesus is coming back. We live in this world of the here and now, and we're looking forward to the there and then. We live in the world of some more. We're going to the place of no more. We live with some more heartache. We're going to the place of no more heartache. We live with some more sickness. Going to the place of no more sickness. We live with some more cancer. Going to the place of no more cancer. We live with some more greed. Going to the place of no more greed. We live with some more riots. Going to the place of no more riots. We live with some more racism. Going to the place of no more racism. We live with some more brokenness. We're going to the place of no more brokenness. We live with some more sin, but we're going to the place of no more sin. Church, I came to tell you, there's coming a day when Jesus will split the eastern sky. He'll mount his white horse. He'll assemble the holy ones, and he will descend and rescue the church. Paul says everything is seen in light of that glorious day, the day of the Lord. Jesus is coming back. So how we live today is in light of the second coming of Christ. We know he's coming. There's no doubt about it. Jesus will return and the work of the gospel as Christ is being formed in you and formed in me. The way the gospel is lived out is in faith and love. We have an ever-growing faith in the biblical God who has given us the perfect demonstration of his perfection in Jesus Christ. Our faith grows in Christ, and so does our love. Love for God, love for one another, love for everyone. So what Paul says to the Thessalonians, I say to you, is Christ being formed in you. You tattered net, you're worn and frazzled and torn. Is Christ being formed in you? Is he mending the gaping holes of your life? Is Christ being formed in you? Friend, today can be the day of your salvation. Today you can accept Jesus Christ and declare that your life is tattered and torn and you need Jesus to come in and to forgive you of your sin. Friend, today can be the day at the moment of invitation, you can just call out to God saying, I know that I'm a tattered net. I know that I make mistakes. I know that I am sinful. And Jesus, I know you died on the cross for my sins. And on the third day, you were raised from the dead. And today, I trust you. Friend, if you make that decision today, then your life will never be the same. I promise. 
And if you're here today, you're listening to this message, and you would say, I'm, I'm identified with Christ. There was a moment in my life when I trusted Jesus and Christ was formed in me. Let me ask you, the Christ that was formed in you positionally, is that Christ practically being formed in you on a daily basis? And if there are some torn, tattered areas of your life, today can be the day where you go to God and you say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner, for I need you. Real living, Paul talks about, is not based on the size of your house or the size of your bank account. Real living is not based on the number of cars in your driveway or the number of diplomas on your wall. Real living is not based upon the success of your career or even the luxury of your vacations. Paul says in our passage that now we're really living because you have taken your stand in Christ. That word stand is a military term. It means to hold your post, to stay on your point. That nothing is going to dissuade you. That is real living. Real living, a life that's worth living, is a life that's dedicated to God in faith and love. That's real living. When you see God's gospel being lived out in somebody else, that's real living. When you see God's gospel being lived out in you, that's real living. When the Spirit of God convicts you of sin, that's real living. When you say, today, I'm going to live for the Lord, that's real living. The only life worth living is a life that's dedicated to God, wholly and completely in faith and love. This is the life that God has called you to. So let me ask you, friend, is Christ being formed in you? Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this moment of invitation. As people in this house and people in houses all across our city, nation, and world, oh, Father, we pray that in this moment that we literally ask the question, is Christ being formed in us? If the answer is yes, to God be the glory. If the answer is no, let it be today a day of salvation, a day of repentance, a day of reconciliation and restoration. Lord, help us this day to build our life upon you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.